Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor and a podcast host. And during the COVID-19 scenario, we've really spent a lot of time talking about dispelling misinformation. And today may be one of the most important podcasts around the COVID-19 phenomenon. There have been a lot of discussion, or there has been a lot of discussion, around the idea of masking. Does a mask matter? And the mask has turned kind of into almost a political statement, that if you're somebody who rejects the idea of isolation, rejects the idea that uh, someone can tell you what to do, that um, there's somehow your freedom is being taken from you if you have to wear a mask. On the other hand, I feel as though this is a, a way we can protect others from inadvertent spread of a, of a very communicable virus. And I've had these discussions with people online over the last few weeks, and it's been rather disturbing because it seems like a very simple gesture to me that people tell me it doesn't matter. There's no evidence to say it works. And so I thought we would talk to one of the experts. And as I've tried to study on this, the name uh, Raina McIntyre comes up over and over again. And Dr. McIntyre is the head of the biosecurity program and professor of global biosecurity at Kirby Institute and the NHMRC principal research fellow that spends a huge amount of time understanding the role of this mode of protection uh, in communicable disease. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. McIntyre. Hi, Kevin. Nice to be talking to you. It's very nice to talk to you. And, and, you know, I I hope my uh, introduction there really kind of frames where we're going and we haven't spoken before. Uh, There was a, a, someone on Facebook who actually said, put me on with her, but he was rather abusive and rather difficult to deal with. And I really just thought I would ask the hard questions with you and and talk about, you know, do masks really matter? Let's start out with your credentials in this area. Could you tell me a little bit about your research and how you've been studying how communicable disease can be prevented? Okay, so I'm a physician and I've done, you know, masters and a PhD in epidemiology. I'm also I've also got dual specialist qualifications in medicine and um I've been studying respiratory transmitted infectious diseases since about 1992. Um and that includes things like influenza, measles, um even smallpox, uh, which is also a respiratory virus. And um, in 2005, there was a peak in pandemic planning around the world um, around avian influenza, which was the H5N1 bird flu. 
And at that time, the planners realized there were no randomized controlled clinical trials of face masks. And this had come up because of the fear that there would be a, a pandemic because of um, avian flu. So um, I was asked at the time by our chief medical officer to uh, whether I could design a study to look at the efficacy of masks. And I said, sure, I can do that. So we designed a study and that first study looked at community use of face masks. So we identified children in the emergency department who had influenza-like illness. We tested all of them to see what virus they had and we randomised their parents, their families, um, to either have a surgical mask, a P2 mask, which is like an N95 mask, or a um, or control, uh, no mask at all. And then we followed them up for a couple of weeks and looked at whether or not they developed infection and we tested the parents if they developed symptoms. And the first thing we found was that compliance was very low. Um, you know, by, by day five, um, between tw- only about 25 to 30% of people were wearing the mask. So by what's called the intention to treat analysis, there was no significant difference, but that's because the compliance was so low. When we just analyse the people who did actually wear the mask, it definitely protects, okay? So the parents who wore the mask didn't tend to get sick as much as the ones who didn't wear the mask. And um, that was, um, you know, one of a few other trials that came out at the time which all had similar results, that the intention to treat analysis wasn't significant, but when they did a sub-analysis on either early use of the masks or compliance with the masks, they found that it did protect. So really, it's more of a question of getting people to comply with the proper use of a face mask. And what does that mean? Is, Is it a fitting issue? Is it a timing issue? What does compliance really mean? Compliance means you actually wear it when you're meant to wear it. So in in that case, you know, if you've got somebody in the family who is sick, you should wear it every time you're around them in the same room, right? And people find that very hard, particularly in Western cultures. There's no culture of mask wearing. But the thing about compliance is it varies with perception of risk. And, you know, people don't perceive normal winter colds and flus as serious, but they do perceive COVID-19 as serious. So I would guess that, you know, people who are either living with someone who's got COVID or um, having to go out and about when there's a lot of COVID around would perceive the risk as higher and would be much more likely to comply with wearing it when they're meant to wear it. Well, here in the States, we're seeing a lot of discussion around whether or not it's even necessary and, and, you know, without getting into the political side of this, a lot of people see the mask as a um, as a political statement that I'm not going to wear it because um, I disagree that this is a problem. And, you know, we see it all the time. And so this is like step one of, of a lack of compliance. But for those of us who are compliant, some people are wearing surgical masks. Some people are wearing like dust masks, like for... Um, that you might wear if you were sweeping out a dusty room or working on drywall, other people working with N95 masks. So is there really a difference in something like viral transmission, either from the wearer or to the wearer when you wear these different types of masks? Um, There is. um, So the, the, 
biggest number of studies comparing those different types of masks have been done in healthcare, so in doctors and nurses wearing them in the hospital setting. And um, again, it's contentious um, and there's some political agendas at play around the interpretation of the evidence rather than the evidence itself. The evidence itself shows that um, a respirator does perform better than a surgical mask, which performs better than a cloth mask. And there's a few different factors that come into that. One is the actual face piece itself and what material it's made of and how well it filters the particles that go through it. And the second is the fit around the face because air will travel in the path of least resistance. So if you're wearing a mask and you've got gaps on the side and you take a breath in, the air will preferentially flow through those gaps rather than being forced through the face piece, right? So automatically a respirator has, um, like an N95, has an advantage because it's got that fit around the face so it stops that air leakage whereas surgical mask um, is good for protecting you from really um, visible splashes and sprays of fluid, like if someone coughs right in your face or sneezes right in your face, but um, it probably won't protect you that well against an airborne um, uh, aerosol transmission because as you breathe, the air will just flow through those gaps rather than being pushed through the mask. Um, and a cloth mask is um, not as good again as a surgical mask. However, nobody's really worked on design of a good cloth mask, and there's actually been an unprecedented amount of research into developing a good cloth mask um, that's occurred because of COVID nineteen. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I see a lot of people out and about who just cover their face with like a handkerchief, or uh, maybe pull their shirt over their face. And it seems like it's still a barrier that if they were to cough or they were to, you know, sneeze, that this may be at least something. And so is something, you know, is, is this kind of a gesture or this kind of a mask of any value at all? Um, probably very limited value. Uh, it's certainly the physical barrier certainly does help because if, you know, if there's a a visible spray of liquid in your face, it'll it'll protect you against that, but it won't protect your eyes because the eyes are the other vulnerable point. Um, but the thing about SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is that there's now a growing body of evidence that shows that it can be aerosolized in very fine particles. It can persist in the air. One study done in the U.S., um, at across five different labs independently, including the US AMRAD lab and the NIH lab, um, they found that you could find vis- a viable SARS-CoV-2 virus up to 16 hours after it had been aerosolized, right? And they also found in that study that um, they compared it with SARS-1 and with MERS coronavirus, and they found that SARS-CoV-2 has a greater tendency to be airborne than the other two viruses for which we accept there is airborne transmission. So the really difficult thing about COVID-19 is, one, that potential for aerosolized transmission, um, and secondly, that you can get a lot of transmission that occurs before anyone has any symptoms, and that's the really difficult thing to control. Um, And that is also a body of evidence that's grown till it's very convincing now. There's been some excellent studies that show that probably the highest risk of transmitting it, if you've got the infection, is in the two days before you develop symptoms or in the first six hours of developing symptoms. 
at, in, during that time, you're likely to have very, very mild symptoms. So that is the time when people will be walking around in the community without any symptoms and um, likely to infect others because the, the amount of virus coming out of them is at its peak, right, two days before they get symptoms. So you can't identify who's infectious, right? You don't know. There's no People haven't got a stamp on their head saying, I've got the virus. You can't tell. That's the reason the masks have been recommended in the US, right? Because you can't tell who's infectious and it can be in the air. So particularly if you're in crowded public spaces, like on buses, on trains, um, going to a mass gathering, a concert, a school, a college, um, that's where the risk is going to be higher, particularly in a country like the US where, um, you know, there's quite a serious um, epidemic going on. Well, you're in Australia, and so what is currently happening in Australia, and is the idea of to mask or not to mask, is it controversial? Well, in Australia, it hasn't really come up at this point because um, the incidence of disease here is extremely low. Um, We've had quite a lot of success with our um, border control and screening and testing, and um, therefore we... Uh, we sort of had a peak of disease in March, which has since declined to almost nothing. There's very little disease around. So it's quite different situation in, say, a city like Sydney going out for, you know, out and about somewhere compared to somewhere like New York or Boston. The whole issue of using a mask to protect from virus, it's not our first rodeo here. We, we We've experienced examples of communicable coronaviruses before and other viruses or how did masks perform in response to MERS or SARS or Ebola were they a critical part of public health or at least minimizing the spread of the virus uh, they were there's a whole lot of studies from SARS uh, some from MERS as well that show that definitely the masks and the respirators were protective um, there's um, also studies from other infections and then there's randomised control clinical trials that have been done generally on influenza but also on some other respiratory viruses. Um, there was one study that, that was done in Hong Kong which was published in Nature recently um, which in which they looked at seasonal coronaviruses. So all the coronaviruses behave in a very similar way. So I think a study on one coronavirus will generally inform the others. And the interesting thing they found was that coronaviruses um, have a tenden- more of a tendency to be aerosolized or airborne than the other viruses. And they come out just in normal breathing. You don't even need to cough or sneeze, okay? So you can be emitting this virus just through normal breathing. Um, and they found that putting a mask on someone stopped the virus from coming out. So that's pretty powerful evidence, together with the other evidence that most of the transmission or the infection happens before you get symptoms. So you could be talking to someone who looks perfectly well and feels perfectly well but is highly infectious, and the virus can hover around in the air. So for all those reasons, you know, a mask is a good idea if you're in a place where there's a lot of disease. Now, it was very interesting to read the research on this. And I, I did kind of a deep dive in the, to the literature, but they were showing research where people were coughing onto uh, essentially Petri dishes to 
estimate the titer of a cough through a mask or without a mask. And even though a mask didn't significantly um, end transmission, it at least significantly decreased the number of uh, aerosolized viral particles. And so at least it seemed like some of the data, even though this is like in vitro work, was consistent with what you're explaining. And so when you start to think about um, people in public and, and speaking, like you say, just breathing, uh, speaking, you know, what are some of the major risks that the public may encounter, uh, you know, just in, a, in, a, in say, in the U.S. where we have a, an active infection, where people may encounter this kind of virus? Is it likely in a place where you're shopping or just uh, with stagnant surfaces that may or may not have been disinfected? Or is it in tight quarters, like we've seen in nursing homes and prisons, where people are breathing and speaking, that kind of thing? So obviously the closed environments like prisons, aged care facilities, detention centres, um, and other other very closed um, settings where people reside long term are very high risk, um, especially when you've got staff who are moving in and out can bring the infection in, and those outbreaks can be very difficult to um, control. And the few that have occurred in the US, the nursing home outbreaks, um, up to 50% of people when they go in and test everyone uh, don't have any symptoms but are infected. So that tells you how important it is that asymptomatic transmission can occur. Um, but there's still a risk in crowded public places. So we've has seen publications where um, of outbreaks in a restaurant, for example, or, you know, um, another one in a shopping centre in China where um, there was an outbreak in a shopping mall. So any any crowded public space where there's a lot of people congregating um, will be a risk in a, in a city where there is a lot of disease. Well, we're speaking with Dr. Raina McIntyre. She's the head of the biosecurity program and professor of global biosecurity at the Kirby Institute. And we'll be back with the Talking Biotech podcast in just a moment. Since its beginning almost five years ago, this podcast has served to target misinformation about science while inspiring application of new technologies. The current COVID-19 crisis was a shock and woke a wave of instant experts that can armchair quarterback a solution for you that defies the guidance of actual authorities. Now, I don't know about yours, but my Facebook thread is a steaming stream of conspiracy and miracle cures. I thought this pandemic would bring us closer to science when actually it's stirred the desire to shun those that actually know best. What do those eggheads know anyway? We can think of it as pandemic dunning Kruger, a pandemic, if you will. The people that understand viruses, vaccines, and epidemiology the least are the most confident in their errant positions. They also seem to dominate the communication space. So it's up to you not only to learn as much as you can about the situation, but then immerse yourself into the discussion. Use social media to share good stories, quality podcasts, and solid science. Engage the pseudo-experts and their false bravado. 
Remind everyone that this is a time of uncertainty and it's best navigated by scientists at the helm. Not preachers, television pundits, militia dudes, your aunt, or even political leadership. Turn them all off and listen to credible experts that have dedicated their lives to public health. Identify and share good media. That's our role. To give you something to share as you engage those that believe they know the answers when actually nobody does. And good scientists admit that. The best way to find answers faster is to rely on the skilled and steady hand of scientific expertise. And that's what we'll continue to bring you here on the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Raina McIntyre. She's the head of the biosecurity program and professor of global biosecurity at the Kirby Institute and the NHMRC Principal Research Fellow. What are your roles as an NHMRC Principal Research Fellow? Okay, so the NHMRC is our National Health and Medical Research Council. It's a bit like the NIH in the U.S. It funds medical research in Australia, and um, they also fund research fellowships for people who want to focus full-time on their research. And um, the Principal Research Fellowship is one of the higher levels of um, more senior levels of fellowship that are funded by the NHMRC, and I'm very fortunate to have one of those, which means I can do, you know, focus 80% or more on my research. Well, you've been amazingly prolific. When I was uh, researching the topic, your name kept coming up over and over again on all the different papers regarding uh, these issues and comparisons between different types of masks, that kind of thing. Um, The thing that really bothers me is that in social media, I've read Facebook posts that say a face mask is absolutely useless and makes you even more susceptible to the virus if you wear one. And is there any data to support this or is this just bad information? So um, one of the um, clinical trials we did was one about that compared cloth masks and surgical masks. And that was published in 2015. It was in healthcare workers in Vietnam and they were randomised to either have a surgical mask or a cloth mask. And um, um, that showed that if you were wearing a cloth mask, your risk of infection was higher than the surgical mask group or even higher than the control group. So um, people, uh, that paper became really highly cited during the COVID pandemic because people who were um, looking for what alternatives they could use and thinking about cloth masks in the shortages of um, proper respiratory PPE uh, we're looking up the evidence, and that's the only randomised control trial that's been published on cloth masks. So they were finding this trial and interpreting the evidence in the way that it's it's presented, which is that cloth masks are potentially harmful. So there has been some of that. A lot of people contacted me about it, and what I said to them is, firstly, if you're a healthcare worker, you should not be wearing a cloth mask and you should not be working unless you're given proper PPE. Secondly, um, the cloth mask in the study that we did was specific to that locally designed mask, which was a two-ply cotton or cotton mix um, mask, 
and it may have been related to the uh, not the masks not being washed adequately. You know, people often just pop them back in their pocket and don't wash them for days on end. And cloth is, um, you know, like surgical masks and respirators are actually um, designed to be water resistant, whereas cloth is extremely absorbent. So that's a very bad characteristic of a cloth mask. So, But there are some design fixes that you can use to improve the water resistance and improve the filtration. Um, and none of that has really been researched that much until now. So my, my overall answer is a cloth mask can be designed to be reasonably protective. It's not going to be as protective as a surgical mask or a respirator, but it's still possible for it to be um, um, protective enough in the community. And if people follow some basic design principles like have multiple layers, you know, a single layer mask won't perform well if you're making your own homemade cloth mask. Um, there's studies that show that pure cotton is not as good as a cotton blend. Um, and really the synthetic fabrics like polyester, um, cotton chiffon mix, etc., have that water-resistant property in it because of the synthetic uh, material. They're better in that sense. Um, and there's been a really good study that showed, um, that's come out of the US actually, that showed that on any mask, whether it's a surgical mask or a cloth mask, if you put a nylon stocking, like the kind you put on your legs, you know, just tie it around the mask and tie it at the back of your face, it actually improves the filtration of any mask or respirator. And the reason probably is that that applying that nylon stocking makes it fit, right? So it stops the air leakage around the side. So in summary, you know, I, I don't think you can write off all cloth masks. Um, if you follow the design principles of what should be an effective mask, you can make a, a cloth mask that's probably reasonably protective. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I haven't put a nylon over my head in years. <laughs> but, you know, just when I, yeah, anyway, we won't go there. But, but one of the things that I notice about my use of a mask, and, and I've been really carefully sequestered at home because to me, I see, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably young, I'm healthy. And if I was a carrier, I would be really heartbroken if somebody would become infected because of me. And so I always look at my role as to be uh, at least stay healthy. And one of the things that I notice about wearing a mask when I go to the grocery store or go to, you know, the home improvement store is that if I have the mask on, I don't touch my face because if, if I have an itch, if I have, you know, whatever, something that would cause me to reach towards my face, the mask is kind of a reminder that, hey, don't do it. And has there been any uh, research or any uh, investigation or guidance that says the mask, maybe not as a filter, but as a reminder, plays a really important role in the transmission of communicable disease? I'm not aware of any research that actually proves that wearing a mask stops you touching your face. Um, and I'm not sure that everybody can be that diligent. It's like a reflex action, you know, touching your face. And there certainly has been research showing that the surface of the mask can be quite contaminated. Even one study showing that the SARS-CoV-2 virus can be found on the mask seven days later. So, um, you know, touching the mask is a bad idea all around and you've got to be super careful when you're taking it off as well. Try to only handle the ties, not the front of the mask. 
Well, your your role as as somebody who's an expert in this area, if you had to give a recommendation to the listener about what they should do regarding a mask, can you give us some guidance? Like, you know, what kind of mask should you choose? And if you don't have that, what should you do? You know, give me a little bit of guidance here. So I think the first thing is that we need to make sure that our healthcare workers have adequate PPE. And I believe there's still shortages in the United States um, that doctors and nurses are unable to get respirators in some cases. The CDC has sort of downgraded their recommendations and even said to, to doctors and nurses, you can use a cloth mask as a last resort. And that's a bad situation because we don't want our healthcare workers getting infected and dying because then who's going to look after us when we need it? Um, So the first thing is not to um, uh, impact on their their ability to be protected while they're working at the front line. Um, The recommendation by the CDC has been cloth masks for the community. So I think um, following those design principles, you know, making a mask that or buying a mask that's got more than two layers, probably three three or four layers is best. Um, the finer the weave of the fabric, the better, and the higher the thread count of the fabric, the better. Um, fabrics, and if you can design it so that it somehow creates a fit around the face, and that could be just using the nylon stocking, doesn't mean you put the stocking over your head, you just put it over the mask, like a, like a you know, in the same direction as the mask and tie it at the back of your head. Um and um, making sure you wash it every day. So you can't just keep reusing it because that's um, dangerous. It gets contaminated. You have to, I would recommend having more than one so that you can cycle through them and wash them every day. Just putting them in the um, laundry, in the washing machine with soap is enough. Um, And sometimes uh, if you can't wash them, you can get those little um, ultraviolet sterilization boxes or um, disinfectant spray that you can spray on them, but check what you're spraying on them isn't toxic. Um, but the best thing is just to put them in the laundry and not to reuse them uh, if after one day of use. So I think if you follow those principles, um, you can have a reasonably protective mask. Well, that's really good advice because I, I, I know that the ones that I use, you know, I wear the paper surgical ones that are, well, multiple levels of uh, fabric and, uh, you know, I keep it in my car, hang it from the rear view mirror and, you know, I, I put it on when I go into a place where I need to wear it, I take it off and hang it back up. And so I really probably have to revise my strategy here. But when we start to look at the rules that are coming up, like the rules are being lifted. Do you think that masks are more important now that we're going to be trying to resume normal life where asymptomatic carriers may be, you know, extremely prevalent? How important are masks now as we start to transition back to what they call normal? I think they're more important, but let me just touch on something else you just talked about with reusing your surgical mask. So the surgical masks and the respirators, the disposable respirators, they're single-use products. They're not, um, you know, they're not manufactured to be reused, although obviously now there's recommendations on reuse. You obviously can't put those in your washing machine because they'll um, 
they'll just get disintegrated. Um, there are methods to disinfect and reuse them, but you must disinfect them. Um, the sun, hanging in the sun is not enough because you need UVC, which is not, which doesn't, which are um, the the best germicidal rays of the sun, but they don't penetrate the um, ozone layer and come down to earth. So what we get through normal sunlight isn't as um, good as the UVC, but you can buy those little UVC steriliser boxes and you, know, you can put your mobile phone in, your mask, whatever. Um, and you sh should, um, you could also use some kind of disinfectant spray. But you, if you're going to reuse the paper mask, you have to disinfect it. Um, I think yes, as we as we resume activities and um, start congregating more, going back to work, going back to school, etc., the risk is going to increase. And in the US, um, you know, it's it's the epidemic hasn't really been brought under control. So there's already a lot of disease around. So it's quite a dangerous period. Um, and for all those reasons that I said, the virus can be in uh, in the air. It can be breathed out without coughing or sneezing, and people who are highly infectious may not have any symptoms at all. So you don't know. You don't know amongst all those people that you're working with, talking with, interacting with, you don't know who's infectious. And it's one of the few things we've got. We don't have a vaccine. You know, the, the couple of things we've got are maintaining physical distancing, so keeping that one and a half metres apart from other people, and a mask. And, you know, uh, it's very sensible to use whatever we've got. Now, I, I, I appreciate that, that point very much because it looks like we are going to dive into opening up everything. Um, our president, our uh, local politicians, uh, people in general who feel that this is uh, that masks and in isolation and and shutting things down is this, you know a, a violation of freedoms. This is all very real here. And so, what would be your best guidance to the average person who is going to be stepping forward into you know the next month or two months, three months? Should they, you know, buy a mask that is of a certain kind? Should they be looking for N95 masks or, you know, what should we be doing at this point? Well, I think the question more is about whether you're going to use a mask or not. And, um, you know, we can wish away the pandemic and wish that it wasn't true and wish that if we just run out and do our normal things, it'll all be fine. But it's not so, you know. This has changed everybody's lives in a major way. It may change our lives forever. We don't know when we're going to have a vaccine. We have to deal with that. You know, we have to deal with that. We have to face the reality we're in. This is something that nobody who is alive today has ever experienced. It's probably even more significant than the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic um, because the world is so much more interconnected and this looks like a much more serious virus than that virus was um we have to just wake up and smell the roses you know we can't just wish it away and pretend that you know life will go back to normal if we wish it that way um we have to accept the reality that this thing has happened um it's pretty bad it's particularly bad in the united states which is really the epicenter in the world right now and if you're living in the united states you've got to try and survive and get through it so that when we do have a vaccine, you'll still be there, your loved ones will still be there, and you can, you know, resume your life. 
And the best way to do that is to take whatever there is that's available to help us get on with things and protect ourselves. No, that's great advice to, to, to close the conversation on. But I think one last thing that I wanted to ask you is when you put on a mask, are you protecting yourself from it or are you protecting everyone else from yourself? What is the philosophy of doing that? Is it something that you're doing to, uh, are you more likely to transmit or more likely to receive? It's both. So I think the, the recommendation in the U.S. is more driven by the view that it'll protect, um, it'll stop you from transmitting to other people if you're infected and don't know it. But there's certainly evidence that it protects both ways. It protects both against infectious people transmitting to others and it protects well people from you know, breathing in air that's full of virus. Well, that's, you know, wonderful advice. And I really appreciate your time on this today. You know, Dr. Raina McIntyre, I really appreciate you spending the time to discuss this incredibly important topic that is very relevant to, to public health as we transition into whatever normalcy means as we go forward in the state. So thank you for your time today. It's a pleasure and all the very best for you and everyone else in the U.S. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Tell a friend that this is a good place to learn the information from the experts that can dispel misinformation about COVID-19 and other issues in science. Right now, we need to be gathering the best information we have to counter the copious misinformation we're finding online. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.